The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello and welcome. I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages. In February 2020, Declan Green took residence at Sydney's Griffin Theatre as the iconic company's new artistic director. He assumed the role after making considerable impact as an inventive, intuitive and intelligent theatre maker in Melbourne at companies including Malthouse, MTC and his own trailblazing company, Sisters Grimm. Commencing his tenure at Griffin, he confronted the challenge of steering a theatre company through the challenge and peril of lockdowns and illness presented by the COVID virus. A tumultuous time for all arts organisations, but one that required tremendous rethinking, leading to inventive and unique ways to tell stories and serve an audience. As a playwright, dramaturg and director, he has presented us with works that have confronted, excited, titillated, provoked and always entertained. These include such original experiences of theatre as Moth, 8 gigabytes of hardcore pornography, Green Park, Lilith the Jungle Girl, Wake in Fright and The Homosexuals or Faggots. Declan Green was to join the stage's live program at Vivid earlier in the year, but succumbed to a bout of COVID. He's recovered and we're thrilled that we have been able to complete the promised conversation with Declan as he prepared to launch the 2023 season for the Griffin Theatre Company. And what better place to do such a thing than in the iconic theatre space at Griffin? a stage which has seen so many extraordinary and landmark Australian works be incubated, nurtured and succeed triumphantly. I was just meant to say, I'm so sorry that this didn't happen originally as part of Vivid. That was such fucking terrible timing, getting COVID that exact... <laughs> uh, that, that week, that... Um, that week. That lead up, yeah. Yeah, I managed to not get it for... I remember if I mentioned to you over the email, but our show in here ghosting the party, but it got pushed back by a week because everybody working on the show, including myself, except for myself, got COVID, right. including Julianne, our ED, who came in just to do a COVID briefing. 
and then got COVID <laughs> as a result of it. But after that, I was like, I'm indestructible. The entire cast, the entire creative team, our lighting programmer, everyone got it except me. I'm never going to get it. And then, then two days beforehand, I got it. Pride before the fall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I deserved it. Well, and what, what about long COVID? Have you had any um, no, after I effects? In, I was okay. Fatigue? That's fine. Had you had it? No, no touch. touch oh my wood. God, cool. congratulations. Oh, lovely. There's a, uh, a nice uh, timber <laughs> floor on your stage here. Yeah. How exciting to be chatting to you um, in the in, in, in the theatre itself, yeah. theatre space of, yeah. of um, Griffin Theatre Company, um, which has been an incubator for so many wonderful Australian works over so many years. Mm. The company is about 43 years old, isn't it? Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. 79, I think. Oh, my God. I, I, I don't have that at my fingertips. You, how embarrassing for me. Were you born? No, 85. <laughs> 85. Oh, my yeah. God. Yes, yes. Yeah. So you took the reins in uh, February of 2020. That's right. Yeah. So um, quite a tumultuous couple of years. Uh, yeah. You know, if we're just touching on COVID then. Um, do you feel like that the toughest part is behind you now? Um, I don't know because I probably would have said to you every three months the toughest part of this is behind me now. I think I would have just kind of assumed every step of the way. I I think when I started here, it was um, I think three weeks I'd been in the job before the first order to lockdown kind of came. So it was this kind of very strange process of like not only learning how to be an artistic director because previous to that I'd just been a you know a playwright and a and a resident artist at Malthouse Theatre, um, but uh, kind of also having to learn very quickly what it was to um, manage a theatre company that was going through this kind of extraordinary period of crisis and chaos and turmoil at the same time. So I didn't really know what was in store for me, and I guess I still don't really know what's in store. We're still even though we're kind of through the lockdown period, there's so many. Uh, bizarre unexpected impacts that continue to happen as a result of the times that we're living in be it just people unexpectedly getting covid or um and suddenly your show having to be rescheduled at short notice or whatever or it might be um the fact that we're currently sitting um on the set of white valley yellow tree and all the timber that was used in this was suddenly wildly more expensive than it would be normally because the price of wooden building materials has gone up so much right all that knock-on effect of, yeah of, yeah of just all these strange little domino effects so yeah, yeah i'm not really sure what's in store for us <laughs> is, there, is there a handbook on on running a theater company or, <laughs> or um, uh, you know, um what is it ad for dummies yeah. <laughs> if there was i still don't even think it would apply for a place like griffin it's so different to every other theater company but that's mm. also why i love it and why it's the only theater company i feel like i'd I was ever interested in running or wanted to run. Have you got mentors or, or people that you can turn to for advice? Or yeah, I mean, you, you know, your Obi Wan Kenobi's kind of. I mean, Matt Lutton, who was my boss at Malthouse Theatre and is also you know a phenomenal theatre director, who has who I've worked with a lot, has been a mentor to me. Even though Matt and I are quite a similar age, he's just always been a few steps ahead of me in his career. So especially early on when I first started at Griffin, he was someone who I picked up the phone to pretty often and was asking for help. But also Lee, Lee Lewis. Um, I mean, really, like very few people know Griffin as intimately as she does and knows um, Griffin's audience as intimately as she does and also has such a phenomenal instinct for writing and 
and um, directors and craft. And so she's also somebody who I will definitely pick up the phone to when I'm uh, at a loose end and she's always got time. I mean, she has so much love for this company still, obviously. So she's always kind of happy to help with that. But a lot of it is, as with anything, is, is learning on the job. Yes. And that's been a lot of your uh, yeah. pathway, hasn't it? As a playwright, as a director. Yeah, I mean, when I kind of started out as a playwright, especially, I, don't, I think other than maybe there was a diploma at NIDA at the time, um, a diploma in playwriting, but it was before there was an MFA course, um, which there is now at NIDA and which there is now at VCA. So I never studied. I just kind of um, fumbled my way through writing a bunch of different early plays and trying to put them on myself and, um, and having a lot of failures and some successes but more failures and um, just kind of learning gradually what worked and what didn't work and I'm really glad that I kind of I had that experience of doing it but it, it, it's very um different doing that on the scale of an individual project to running a company is incredibly important <laughs> as Griffin like I definitely feel uh, it, taking the job over as well taking on the role of a company like this especially because it's I mean, it's so important. It's Australia's only theatre of new writing. Um, but it, it's also a company that's always been, had some version of fragility mm. around it. Um, so taking on the role, I definitely felt a pretty advanced sense of, um, yeah, I can't, I can't fuck this up. This, this company's too important. Uh, fr fragility as in... Um you know, existence or... Yeah, I mean, there were things like, you know, up until 1986 when Rodney Seaborn uh, kind of came out and saved the stables and established the SB and W Foundation. Um, there was just a constant struggle for um, to remain resident of this theatre. The fact that there were threats of it being sold to developers when Bob Ellis was the owner... Um, yeah, just just real insecurity about the viability of the company. There were there was there's been periods of enormous funding cuts and funding insecurity. Um, it's just a company that's I think for a lot of its life um, has felt like it's always been close to some kind of precipice of being unviable, or um, which is particularly because of the significance of the company is something that's pretty scary. Um, in a lot of ways but um, I certainly feel like at the time I inherited the company in 2020 it was in perhaps some of like the rudest health that it had been <laughs> for, for quite a while um, uh, you know I, I think what Lee Lewis and Karen Rogers established before me um, uh, in terms of finding a way to create work that was of scale and of significance from like pretty meager resources um and also maintaining this like fiercely loyal and dedicated audience who arrive in this very small and slightly ramshackle space with expectations of greatness that are very often met like that's a remarkable thing to inherit and something i feel very lucky to have inherited they are very often met indeed i am amazed as you know as a subscriber and having come to mm. the griffin for many years how this space, this tiny ramshackle space, as you describe it, can be transformed into the most extraordinary of designs yeah. and, and worlds. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I remember your, your production of The Faggots. Yes, yeah. Um, where we had this sort of uh, mezzanine in a, a Paddington apartment, yeah. Dunninghurst apartment. Um, it was extraordinary. Uh, and all the conventions of a farce with, with windows and doors that opened and shut and yeah. banged and... 
Yeah. Which excellent. was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin mm. at, at the same time. I mean, I knew that I wanted to... Like, th- that was a play, I think... I think that was on here. I wrote I wrote it. it. It was on here, I think, in 2017. And it was a play about... um. Uh, you know this this very kind of silly attempt to write an honest to god yeah like door slamming um uh kind of Fate bosom of heaving farce yeah. yeah yeah and um but i wanted to kind of make it about um the ascendancy of white gay men um in culture at large and uh and and also you know write something about I guess what at the time I don't even know if the word cancel culture was kind of in the was in the culture at large, yeah. but yeah, I guess this kind of um this this uh, kind of tremendous social anxiety that I kind of started seeing percolate about about the idea of like what what you can say and what you can't say and and kind of uh, battle lines being um, drawn socially around that and uh, I, I thought it would be kind of great interesting material for a farce mm. and um and when I uh, pitched it to Lee um, it was this uh, something that initially felt like a really difficult parameter to negotiate the idea of doing yeah if you see a, a flea in her rear or something like that it's a multi-level set with heaps of doors and trap doors and walls that revolve and that's like really built into the architecture of the play mm. so the idea of doing it in a space like Griffin was really challenging and really um, but it bore really great fruit that level of restriction and I kind of went well if it's going to be small, I want to make an asset of that smallness. I want it to be about the fact that um, that there isn't enough space. And given it was set in Potts Point as well, <laughs> it seems like, um, and there's been so much, um, the gentrification of this area has been so um, driven by you know, white gay men with a lot of money who are paying way too much for tiny, ridiculous little apartments mm-hmm. and engaging in cultures of kind of space saving and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we ended up really leaning into. I think the play got to make a better statement because of that. And as with so much of your work, which can be subversive, um, twisting it to make that, 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 that story about gay white men, you know, a traditional farce is normally about the, the, the cuckolded man or the mm. dirty old man who chases big-breasted nurses or, yeah. or, or whatever. So, so to turn that around on its ear was, uh, was a brilliant... Yeah, even if um, I think that was really fun as well because we had um, Lincoln Eunice in the cast who I think mm. was fresh off home in a way at that point who kind of, yeah, within the different kind of archetypes of the farce, he ended up kind of fulfilling, at least in this one, the, the role buxom of yeah, the buxom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and um, despite being a brilliant, brilliant actor, was very, very game, kind of playing the role of the, I don't know, ridiculous, dumb eye candy <laughs> on the stage. It did very well. So certainly exciting times ahead with a, a recent announcement mm. about uh, refurbishment and development of the, the Griffin Precinct. Mm. Tell me about that. Um, well, there's kind of two really major things that, that have happened uh, over the last couple of months that we've been able to announce. Um, uh, one of them is that we uh, were successful um, in receiving creative capital funding from Create New South Wales, which means that uh, we're going to be undertaking um, a major redevelopment of the stables. Um, it means that um, the theatre is going to be expanded by... Um, the, floor, the floor space is going to be expanded by 40%. It means that we're... Um, the theatre is going to absorb the terrace house next door, which the SBW Foundation um, her, her purchased. Um, so 
yeah, this space that, yeah, I described before, it's like it's a very lovingly ramshackle space. It's very small. That's a very huge part of its identity. Um, we're going to be undergoing this kind of, I think, very careful and considered but very exciting period of negotiating what Griffin looks like when it's a little bit bigger and how we maintain all the important, precious intimacy of this space while also making it, you know, a slightly friendlier space for particularly actors and directors and creatives to be in. Which is backstage, I imagine, is pretty tight. It's it's wild back mm. there. Like, it's a corridor, basically. The dressing room, I mean, if you've ever been in there, it's it's um it's smaller than the stage. It's absolutely, absolutely tiny. And um it's fine for maybe like two or three people, but we do plays here that have six, seven, sometimes even eight actors in them. And when you get to that kind of critical point, also, if you've ever seen the crossover, you basically exit and enter the stage under the seating bank um, through the bathroom backstage, which means there's literally a toilet you have to step around every single time you have to go on stage. So there are things like that are wonderful and great about its character, but things that I think we could make it a little bit easier for, um, for people to actually use. That, that's the, um, the beauty of theatre, isn't it? I mean, once that actor exits, the audience have no idea Absolutely. what's happened or they don't know sometimes I think it would make a better play backstage what's happening which you saw something like noises off absolutely about yeah, yeah yeah and I'm sure that if you put a video camera or a GoPro backstage uh, looking at a lot of the plays that have happened here it is, it is a farce it's ridiculous people having to run off stage and climb over another actor in order to get their hand through a costume and then pick up that prop that's on top of that shelf there because there's no room for it anywhere it's it's wild what people have negotiated, <laughs> but also people love it. And every yeah. actor worth their salt in Sydney wants to perform on stage at the SBW Stables. Like they love this theatre because it's there's a level of challenge that um, I think people find it very exciting to rise to. Your work as a stage actor never gets scrutinised with as much detail that it uh, that it does here. The idea that there are people who are sitting a metre away from you who can see every movement of your eyebrow, every and yeah, you every can hear, choice you can hear everything they say as well absolutely <laughs> for better or worse yes i don't think people realize that as well that when they're seating in the city in one of the seating banks here because it is literally at the top of the dressing room i think that if after the show if you were like god wasn't he terrible like god it wasn't like they can they can hear that they are literally under that <laughs> sometimes yeah J- jackie weaver told a story of she was at the um the opera house at the drama theater i think and uh, they could hear the tannoy as the audience oh, were arriving. God, yeah. And a couple of old ladies looking at their program said, Oh, Jackie Weaver's <laughs> in there. I can't stand her. So, Could you yeah. imagine there was a time in, in theatre in Australia where someone would look at Jackie Weaver's name and go, Oh, no. Like, oh, yeah. my God, how lucky. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Nielsen donation. Yes, and that's yeah. the other major thing. So that happened first. Um, and then, yes, the, um, the Nielsen Foundation have uh, purchased the staples from um from the SBNW foundation and the terrace next door as well which means that not only are we going to get to undergo this incredible transformation of the space but we're also for the first time in the history of the company going to own the building as well it's going to be our own theater mm. in permanence which is you know like like i said before the the fact that um Rodney Seaborn saved the theater from um developers was such a landmark moment in the history of the company and now the idea that, like, it's such a beautiful thing that they've been kind of caretakers of this building up mm. to this point, up to the point where we were, like, able to own it for ourselves. And mm. now it's um, been moved over into our possession. It's very exciting. To have such angels yeah. looking over you. Um, we, Australia really does need to get better at philanthropy, doesn't it, with, with the arts? 
Um, well, it does, but at the same time, we I think Griffin is, like I said, we've, there's been a precariousness to the life of this company for such a long time, but also we have been the beneficiaries of incredible philanthropy. I mean, there's Rodney Seaborn, obviously, but there are also things like um, in 2015, the um, as part of the Brandis cuts, um, Griffin's funding got hugely slashed, which meant that we suddenly couldn't do five plays a year anymore. Um, that which has you know, been the tradition for a long time. Um, we could only afford to do four, and um, then the Gergensen Foundation, um, amazing arts philanthropists, um, stepped in and decided to completely fund the fifth play in our season, which they did up until I think uh, wherever she wanders, which was um, originally twenty twenty, was the last play they did because basically then we got our funding <laughs> um got got kind of yeah we so uh they looked after that they kind of held that project for that amount of time and every time there's been a kind of major crisis like that there has been somebody kind of stepping in and holding us and making sure that we'll be okay for a little while and often that's fallen to philanthropy that's wonderful wonderful so Declan um, growing up it's you're a Melbourne boy I'm like I'm uh, rural Victoria. I grew up in the country. All oh, right. Yeah, I lived in Melbourne for for I think about twelve years before I moved to Sydney. But yeah, I originally grew up in the country. Right. How was that? It was. Um, Where did you find your your artistic expression? What 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 was informing I don't know. you? I was just an extremely extremely homosexual little child. <laughs> I was just like, <laughs> I was just um, yeah, like. Super flamboyant and super like from when I was a really really little kid, I was obsessed with um, the Wizard of Oz, especially and Mary Poppins and a kind of old musicals and um, I was a so I was fixated with watching them but also recreating them. I used to like dress up a lot as I was obsessed with the Wicked Witch of the West, especially. There's an amazing photo of um. Uh, when I think I was about five or four, I was like a, a kindergarten dress-up day where um, I told my mum that I wanted to go as the Wicked Witch of the West. So my mum dressed me up as the Wicked Witch of the West. So there's like all these kids and this little kid with a pointy hat and green face and a witch nose <laughs> like that in there and that's me. Well, it's um, brilliant that it wasn't Dorothy. You, no. you, you went for the villain yeah, and got to do drag as well. Absolutely. And I think I still go for the villains. <laughs> I mean, the villains were always more interesting. Oh, like yeah. Like Ursula. And also queer, like all mm. coded as queer, all of them. Mm. Um, Scar in The Lion King. Um, in a way that I think a lot of people see retrospectively is quite like problematic or offensive. But I love, they were always the more interesting characters. Like they were fascinating and complex and tormented. And the heroes were always kind of wishy-washy and dull yes. and boring um but yeah so very like very um just creative and luckily um uh in a, in a place where there wasn't very much else to do either so like imagination was very very important to me and I feel very very lucky that by some complete quirk of fate I've ended up being able to kind of like live in that space still mm-hmm. as an adult I still just get to play and make believe and um. I assume you were an avid reader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was an obsessive, very, very avid reader. Um, Like, uh, I was really into, like, um, uh, like Sherlock Holmes and, um, like, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, all of those books. Um, But also really into just, like, trash, like Goosebumps books and and obsessed with music as well. Obsessed with, like, um, like... 
all these like this world of canon of like alternative divas like Courtney Love and Hole and um, PJ Harvey and uh, what about those traditional divas Judy Garland and Streisand and yeah I they were they were later I remember um, I feel like my mum my mum was onto a lot of stuff about um, my queerness well before I was um, and. Uh, there was a point I've, I've watched Cabaret for some reason and was obsessed with it like obsessed with it and um, was just watching it kind of incessantly and telling my mum about how much I loved Liza Minnelli and I just remember her being like you know like Liza's a pretty big gay icon <laughs> like a lot of gay men really love Liza Minnelli and I was like oh my god that's interesting anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but um yeah, loved her. And obviously Judy, like, was obsessed with Judy. Loved, loved her from a really young age. But, but what is that fascination about, do you think? It's, it's the, the, mm. the tortured character, the suffering that, that gay men can relate to? Or? There's a really, really great article that I used to be obsessed with by um, Daniel Harris called The Death of Camp, um, where he writes about um, gay male fascination with divas. And he writes about it in this really complex and kind of self-effacing way about the idea that our um, love of the diva is a love of kind of unattainable perfection and wanting to kind of insert ourselves into these um, grand romantic narratives, like these alternate worlds where we can imagine ourselves um, getting to uh, fall in love with Rock Hudson or whoever else. <laughs> Maybe Hunter, slightly. Yeah, yeah, Montgomery exactly. Cliff. All of them slightly more attainable than people might have imagined at the time. Um, so we love them for their perfection. Um, but then we also um, love them for their... When they're decrepit, when they kind of fall apart. Um, that there's a kind of like mixture of love and hatred in there where we kind of like punish and ridicule and make kind of... Um, yeah, like we can love Judy when she's at the top of her game, but we love her even more when she's, um, you know, drunk and high on barbiturates and her voice is blown out and stuff like that. There's this kind of really vampiric kind of possessiveness over that kind of misery as well, which I think um, has something to do with self-hatred and and, um, and feeling like you don't have a place. And um so I don't know. I think I think it's really complex. I think like there is that kind of that narrative of just like we imagine ourselves as the diva, but I think there's this yeah there's this also kind of this really flinty, complex, nasty side to it as well that I actually also think is quite generational as well because I think like young queers now, I don't think they love the decrepit diva in the way that no, it's more of a, a Gaga or exactly they love yeah. them just for the perfection. They yeah. love them for the. Um, yeah, they love them because they are. Um, they just love the unattainable version of them. They don't need that darkness or that that real ugliness or tragedy in the same way that I feel like queers of my generation and, and older do. Yeah. So entering adolescence, are you finding an outlet to to perform and to, to make theatre, school mm. drama or community theatre? Yeah, I was really really lucky. Um, at high school, I had. Uh, a really amazing drama teacher named Prue Verme who um, like kind of she really saved me in a lot of ways like I don't know what I would have done in high school if I didn't have if I didn't have drama it was just this like little pocket of the world where um, 
I could kind of do what I wanted and be who I wanted and didn't feel like I was going to get beaten up or didn't feel like I was going to get bullied or, or whatever for it. And I think so many people in theatre, but actually just so many queer people in life have similar experiences in high school where they've found a kind of... Tribe or... A... Absolutely. Yeah. And, but, but safety yeah. as well, like real safety in those spaces. Of like, yeah, places where they don't have to hide. So, um, yeah, and I started doing kind of like high school drama and high school plays and stuff like that. And I kind of... I was doing acting originally. I really, really wanted to be an actor. But... um. And then I auditioned for all the drama schools and didn't get into them. And um, and then sometime after that, I saw myself on film for the first time. was like, oh, that's why I didn't get into the drama schools. I'm actually really bad at this. I'm like not good at all. So I, um, I decided that I would start writing roles for myself. And... Uh, and and I'd actually, I'd always been doing little bits and pieces of writing as well. Like I had always written like short stories and poetry and stuff like that, but had never really written theatre or like written for performance. But at that time I was like, no, I can, I, can, I can be a good actor if I've got the right role and I'll just write those roles for myself. And, um, and then at another point I kind of met Ash Flanders, um, who's still uh, one of my best friends and my creative partner. And I was like, oh he can do it better than me. Like he can do these roles that I write so much better than me. So actually he should just do that and I'll, <laughs> I'll stop acting altogether, which was for the best, I think, for everybody. Uh, what were the circumstances of meeting Ash? We did, I think it was, I was still at university. I think I would have been about 20. No, actually we met when I was 19. I think I was 19 and he was like 23 or something like that. And I was putting on a show for the Melbourne Comedy Festival, this like, absolutely terrible piece of like sketch comedy it was so bad uh, I thought it was genius at the time but Asham just like auditioned off Arts Hub or something like that came and auditioned and he was just so funny like he made our fucking awful writing <laughs> seem like in some way um, yeah actually good and legitimate um, and I kind of knew that I had found like some kind of creative kin really, really early. We just got along really, really well. But then the show was terrible and I had a huge fight with the person I was making it with. Um, and we decided that we wouldn't, um, that we wouldn't uh, be working together anymore. And so we- That's right. It's the show time is starting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, do you want to cut this out or do you want to... We can keep going. I'll, can I'll decide when I listen back. <laughs> <laughs> but um, That's right, Jim. That's right. This is a, a live thing. It is a live thing. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Um, creative differences. With yes, your, yeah. Your so partner. we had creative differences and um, it was a horrible rehearsal period because we weren't, me and this other person weren't talking to each other at all and Ash got caught in the crossfire and then afterwards he was like, he just, he, I think he said to somebody like, Declan Green's a piece of shit and I will never talk to him again in my life. He's an awful person. And, um, and then maybe like six months later, I reached out to him and was like, let's get a coffee. I want to apologize. And I did. And yeah, after that, we just, I don't know, we just started hanging out just as friends and we had a really similar sense of humor. And eventually it just made sense that we would start writing comedy together and start doing like we, all our dynamic as friends was, and still is so about just making each other laugh. And it just became natural that we would write down the the jokes that we were making and the dumb kind of shit that we were saying 
But also he was a very important person to me in terms of my own... I'd never been... Ash took me to my first, like, gay club when I was 19 because at that point I was like... I was like, I hate gay people. Like, I know I'm gay, but, like, I'm not like those other gay people. I listen to Björk. I'm, <laughs> I'm, really, um, I'm really alternative and I'm really edgy. Um, and I loved that Ash loved all the things I loved, but he also was really into, like... Dolly Parton and Belinda Carlisle and like he he was yeah broader canvas absolutely and he'd been mentored and knew all these kind of like I think older queer people as well who'd kind of inducted him into that kind of like great canon of you know queer texts and divas and and pop culture and stuff like that so he kind of um showed me a lot of that stuff and kind of really taught me that you could be both things at once that you could love punk and you could love DIY and you could love the raw and the unfinished and the messy and the gross but also really love um yeah you could love kind of really like ridiculous camp pop culture at the same time and they've all become um, really important reference points i guess in the work that you then went on to to create yeah yeah well we kind of there was also like i felt like he kind of inducted me up to a point and then there was just this kind of process of um of discovering like discovering genre together in a way like a lot of our friendship became about just like watching movies and hanging out and talking and and um and he um yeah so when we decide i think we decided that we'd um watch flowers in the attic once and then we were like oh my god we should make a play that's kind of based on this kind of genre of like the evil mother film and that became and then we watched mummy dearest for the first time we were like oh my god what if we put mummy dearest and flowers in the attic together and um and then we cast this drag queen we knew named misfit in it and that could be a play and once we kind of hit that we were like it this is kind of insatiable exciting thing happened where we were like we could just keep doing this on stage we can just keep finding the film genres and the performers we love who are not necessarily trained performers but might be in bands or might be drag queens or might be just kind of people we know from parties or whatever and we'll just create these weird little worlds and spaces that we know and and try and make something happen there and I think it was it was just this really kind of lucky thing where it was like meeting him meeting him at the right time but also both of us just having this real kind of um passion and drive to make something and work really really hard together mm. when did uh, moth come along at the, at the malt house moth was um uh so that was like my first um commission which happened really unexpectedly because ash and i had really we'd been making i think we started sisters groom in 2006 and we had just been making, yeah, like plays in out of junk in car parks and under bridges and in lounge rooms and really anywhere that we could get for free because we had no money. Um, and doing it to like almost no kind of like quote unquote like industry recognition at all, which was half just that I don't think the stuff we were making was interesting to the industry at that time, but also by design as well. We had no interest in like, even inviting like the Melbourne Theatre Company to come and see our plays. Like it was ridiculous to us that <laughs> like in our minds, we we're like, those people are really embarrassing. Like, why would we want to have them here? Um, given what we're doing, which we think is so much more interesting than that. Um, and then, um, yeah, then it all just, uh, oh, and I, and I just kind of started doing some student theatre. I was at Melbourne University at that point studying art history. Um, and uh, I, so I think I'd had done like one or two plays through, I'd done one at Melbourne University Student Theatre and one at Student Theatre. 
and then I can't remember how it happened, but um, Chris Conn from Arena Theatre had heard about the stuff I'd been writing and asked if he could read a couple of my plays and I sent them to him and then we had a meeting together and he told me that he really wanted to write a, he wanted to create a play that was based on this image in a dream he'd had about a kid at a um, cricket pitch at night and then this really horrible news story about a kid who'd been shot by police while having a mental health crisis and we just kept meeting up and having coffees bit by bit and talking about what this play might be and I didn't really know why it was happening or where it was going or really what arena were or <laughs> anything like that I was completely naive in this process and then eventually yeah he was like okay so we're going to commission you to write this play that we've been talking about and um I think Malthouse Theatre are going to do it um and we've got a year to make it so it was programmed Go. yeah basically yeah <laughs> and it was all because of Chris like it was it was just that Chris Conn and Arena Theatre had a really good relationship with Malthouse Theatre at that point. They'd had a few really successful plays and they wanted to do something with Chris and Chris was basically like, yeah, this is a writer I've been talking to, so let's just, we'll get him to write something and you know it'll be really good because I'm directing it. And, um, and yeah, I was lucky that it, it went really well and that kind of catapulted everything. It's uh, part of the gamble of, of, uh, and battle of, of keeping the industry alive and fresh is finding new voices, new perspectives to, uh, to contribute and to, to nurture and develop to become totally. our new um, leaders and writers and yeah. theatre makers. And I think it's partly why that's something that I'm still... I guess because, yeah, that's obviously been my trajectory, but I feel like um, I love... I'm, one of the things I'm the most proud of in the time I've been at Griffin so far is that we've got to offer that first step onto the main stage for quite a few writers mm. at this point. People like Kirsty Marillia and Elias Jamison Brown and Dylan Vandenberg, who set we're in on the moment. Um, it's such an important period of... Um, like, it's a really important step in the life of any writer, if that's what they want, if this is the, these are the types of spaces they want to be working in. And I think it's so important that that's handled delicately and people are given the best kind of chance at that that they possibly can have, that the work's really well developed and and really considered and really well held. And I feel like I got really lucky with Moth because Chris Con, he's such an amazing dramaturg and such an amazing director, but he just, he wanted the play to be as good as it possibly can be and, and really held the responsibility of, of that um, career moment for me really and subsequently, well, a, a um, one of your um, early first teachers. Yes, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It's very true, actually. He was, and for better or worse, I think the, that process of making moth is something I I still um, I still really um, repeat with a lot of the work writers I work with now as a dramaturg, um, because Chris was. I mean, that process of writing that play, I, I can't even couldn't tell you how many drafts of that play I wrote. We had three developments on it. Um, it was just a two-hander, um, but it was just constant rewrites. Every rehearsal, I would go home and have, uh, I would have to rewrite the scene over and over again until Chris was happy with it. And it, it, it was a trial by fire, but it absolutely made me a better writer. And it also made me realise something that I've carried through to my writing process now and that I try to impart to the writers I work with, just this idea that, behind every scene you write there's 20 other versions of that scene and maybe it won't be the 17th one until it's right and also there's no such thing as good dialogue at all good dialogue only exists in service of the moment that you're crafting with the actors right. in 3d on the floor yeah. and um just because it feels good on the page like get rid of it if it doesn't 
feel right in the mouths of those actors and in the architecture of that play and that story. Um, your work, and especially work with, with Sisters Grimm, has been described variously as um, flamboyant, outrageous, challenging, subversive, provocative, experimental, ridiculous, mm. camp, um, all wonderful, wonderful adjectives. Um, but also you, you've been very game to, to take theatrical forms and really twist them and explore mm. them, you know, a pantomime and melodrama and satire, sketch comedy. Um, I think you effectively um, call it sometimes trash theatre. Mm, yeah. Because it's, it's like putting all of this stuff into a blender and out comes this sort of wonderful concoction. Yeah, yeah. You set out to be different as possible and invent your own, own style of theatre and form? I don't think... I don't know. It's, it's kind of funny because, all, yeah, the, like a lot of those adjectives when especially early on when Ash and I were doing Sisters Grimm stuff, um, were getting reviewed or getting written about. Um, they were the terms that would be kind of used. And I, I don't know, it, it never felt like it was a deliberate or conscientious thing we were doing to go like, we're going to do something that was out there or shocking. I feel like we've always just been very led by what we're interested in and what made us laugh. I think we're very... Um, one of the things that I kind of in retrospect when I look back at kind of where we started one of the things that I think put us in a really good place for the beginnings of our careers is that we were, we've always been very kind of even without knowing it very audience centric as makers because we always wanted to make comedy and now you know a, a good decade or more down the track I really consider comedy as an act of generosity like I think it's it's um it means you're always giving the audience something and um it's there's there's an invitation always with comedy um it shows that you've thought about people and that you've crafted something for them and built a world for them to come into and um and i feel really really um yeah i'm glad that that was kind of where we came from initially so when people would would write that our plays were um were you know provocative or, or whatever it was never like a deliberate act of like let's see what happens if we do this it'd be like in our minds we were like well that, it would be really funny to do that or it'd be um that would be really surprising or that would be really unexpected or exciting if suddenly this thing that you're watching suddenly turned into this completely other thing or um yeah it was always i guess trying to not be boring <laughs> well I, I watched a clip from lilith the jungle girl last night and there's yeah. ash covered in pink mud yeah yeah <laughs> Which I think was also... He looked edible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He definitely... Um, that was clay. That was just clay, I think, right. that we mixed body paint in. I think we destroyed the plumbing at Melbourne Theatre Company doing that play. But it was... Um, but that was also just like... That was a funny... Like, that idea as a premise just made us laugh. We were mm. like, what if we did one of those kind of like... Um, you know, uh, like foundling child kind of plays... Um, or like things and um, and but it was just ash and he was naked and covered in pink mud from head to toe and then what if when he got civilised you know that inevitable point in the elephant man or whatever they start wearing clothes were like what if it's just the clothes over the top of the pink mud and everyone's <laughs> saying it there which is like really dumb but I don't know it was something about following that idea a few extra steps we were like oh but there's actually kind of like a bit of a social conversation that you can be had that, that's inside that um visual image that you can kind of unpack and do some interesting things with. Were you ever aware and, and perhaps informed by the works of uh, Charles Bush or yes, Joe yeah. Wharton, um, Jean Genet? Absolutely, but yeah. not until much later, right. weirdly. It was, um, uh, I don't, I think I found out about um, Charles Bush 
and uh, like uh, Theatre of the Ridiculous when I was in America and was in at the Strand Bookshop and was just looking in their theatre section and then saw this big fat... Um, uh, oh, no, that was Charles Ludlum as Theatre of the mm, Ridiculous. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. so I found Charles uh, a biography of Charles Ludlum. And um, I think at that point I'd read... Um, die, mummy, die. Yeah, definitely aware of them, but but it was it was kind of this this. It wasn't necessarily inspiration. It was just this kind of moment of um almost like validation of going like, oh my god, there's always been like queers who've been doing what we've been doing, mm. who've been mm. kind of um, I don't know. It was exciting and galvanizing and going like, ah, oh, like yeah, we kind of thought that we were the only people who wanted to do this or or make these ridiculous little worlds. Also, when we found John Waters, that was a big moment yeah, right. of that as well. I think the first time yeah. we both saw, um, I think uh, Desperate Living was our first one we ever saw. And we were both just like, this is, like, this is exactly what this we is do. fabulous. Yeah. yeah, it's fabulous. And it's and disgusting and it's camp and it's funny. And it's just all his friends who can't really act. flamboyant, outrageous. Yeah. yeah. Um, confronting. Um, all of those adjectives, which yeah. I used for you earlier on. Um, Joan Rivers is a favourite Yes. Comic of yours. Yes. Yeah. Love Joan Rivers. R.I.P. Yeah. Like, and so um, yeah. I'm just such an amazing trailblazer. Like, even now, I think more than I appreciated it at, at the time, somebody who just really gave no fucks and and overcame such incredible adversary. I remember the one of the times I saw her live. Um just all the jokes she was making about the death of her husband and mm. who suicide didn't he yeah mm. yeah who committed suicide. i remember yeah yeah echo watching her live she was like people asked me why my husband killed himself it was because i took the bag off my head while having sex she's like he just jumped out the window it's like oh my god wow that's i suppose it was a way of her working through it yeah and, you know therapy in front of you know two thousand people yeah yeah and i think that's like that's also um that's why a lot of us i think Create and then, anyway, I think again, not to get too far into kind of like the the um the psychology of responses to queerness or whatever, but I do think that that that's kind of um that that means of processing stuff through comedy and through the making of the creation of kind of ridiculous alternate worlds is very kind of part of that as well. Like it is a, is can be for a lot of queer people a way of um processing that pain and the kind of wrongness that you carry with you for a lot of your lives as well it's just going like yeah you turn it into comedy you turn it into the ridiculous you yeah dress your demons up in drag and <laughs> have them strut around <laughs> yeah uh, what's your rehearsal room like are there a lot of laughs yeah yeah definitely it um especially when we do sisters grim stuff when ash and i do that stuff it's um it's really ridiculous and very very open and in its best version it should feel like anything's up for grabs and the actors can if they can come up with a better funnier thing than us it goes in the play um they're also very chaotic and very um we're both compulsive rewriters and i'm a compulsive rewriter as well Uh, i carry that as nearly every rehearsal room i mean unfortunately um so yeah they're like the script is very rarely stable. Nothing really gets locked off until the last week of rehearsals. There's new drafts and new drafts and new drafts pouring in and actors are learning things and then unlearning things and relearning things. And Have you had the joy of a, a, another production being done of your work yet? You know? Yeah, I have. I have I've had... Um, 
And do you go back and and work on it again, the script for the new production? Yeah, I have, and I actually don't think that's a, it's a good idea. Yeah, I I had a play of Moth actually um, has had a couple of other productions, and one of them was at the um, oh my god, I can't even remember the name of it. It was at the Bush Theatre in London. I went to a, a festival as well. I can't remember the name. Um, and I went over and I rewrote the play while I was there because I was like, I think it can be better. And I rewrote it for an English context. And it didn't really work. It wasn't good. And yeah, I, like I'm definitely a, a playwright. Like I love writing for theatre, but I don't think I'm, I'm not obsessed with the craft of playwriting in, in my own work. I'm obsessed with it in the work of the writers I work with as a dramaturg. But in my own writing, I think um, I see text as just a byproduct of the thing that you're making, yeah. not an yeah. artifact or a beautiful thing in its own right. Yeah. So, And I write so responsively to the actors and to the director and to the design. And I, I like text to be this kind of like fluid thing that, um, that uh, moves and shapes, but is kind of in flux and responds to. So I think a lot of the times my, the scripts of my, the things I write are actually just like, archival documents of a thing that happened but if you extricate them from the production i don't even know if they necessarily work <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they were they're actually really just built for this one-off thing yeah. which is again why i think i know i'm a playwright and not a novelist or not anyone any, anything like that yeah. i'm definitely meant to be making this weird very ephemeral thing and and oh my, my god like the idea of publishing something just brings me out in hives because i'm like well that means i can't change it anymore i hate that <laughs> i want to be able to just constantly change it I'm looking forward to the point where like playwriting becomes like um like musicians with Spotify now. You know how like if you're Kanye West, you can just if you're not happy with a song, you can just take it down, rewrite it, and put it back up. That's what I want playwriting to be. Like that's my ideal version of it. Like if midway through the season I see the perfect version of that scene, I go, oh my god, I can do it. I want to be able to just like write that and change it immediately. That uh, ephemeral nature of theatre, which you just hinted at, then that's that's the whole crux of it isn't it? that's mm. what keeps keeps us coming back mm. as theatre makers and as audience members that you are seeing something which is only going to exist in that time for that moment yeah and never be the same the night following or the, the year following or whatever I think that's true but I, and and I think that is what people want and I think that is the kind of contact high we're all chasing as audience members especially when we go and see theatre I think we are all going uh, like that's one of the things we recognize and love about it. And it does make me sad that more theater isn't built to recognize that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, um, the, just the kind of um, rote repetition of the play night after night. It's why, um, you know, it's like why, even though it makes you die as a theater maker when something goes wrong on the stage, audiences just love it. Oh they yeah. Love yeah. it. I was there the night that, Certain actor won't be named. Drop the drop the knife on the chair, and other actor that won't be named sat on it. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> great, and especially if um that fumble happens, and actor who sat on it suddenly has something yeah. like has a line or yes. has some way you can watch that yeah. they get out of it. It's mm. like the muscularity of that and the excitement mm. of it is so so exciting. I love when um when we when Ash and I do Sisters Grimm shows, we always have um, pockets of sections of the play that are improvised no, right. that have to happen different so it's just a little challenge we try right. and set for the right. performers yeah. in every single show that yeah. kind of keeps them alive as well it means that yeah. every performance there's just they know there's going to be a point they've got to drive to where they've got to try and come up with something else yeah um but 
and I know that like every and and the show that I did here, um, Griffin, um, we did an outdoor work called Green Park, which happened as part of Sydney Festival this year, and but we did it for the first time last year in the actual Green Park. It was a work to um, people having a hookup on a bench, um, an intergenerational kind of um, gay app hookup, and um, the audience sat and watched it, listening to earphones. And I love, it was one of my favorite plays that I've ever got to make to come and watch every night because every night was so different mm. just because we didn't close up the park. So anybody could walk up and talk to the performers if they wanted to. Um, things would just happen in the park, which meant that suddenly the- A possum or- Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you were upstaged by so many bloody ibises. Like we craft this thing in a room for Elias Jameson Brown, the writer works on it for months and months and months. And then suddenly, and Ibis walks in, so no one's going to listen to anything. He's, no, he's, <laughs> he's upstaging watch the everybody. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but there's something about that that was so kind of um, yeah, really, really exciting, and that I'd love to be able to kind of capture. But it, it has to be baked into the thing. You can't just put it in there. It has to be like there yeah. at the foundations of the project. Yeah, yeah. And those experiences become like a playlist. You know, from years of theatre going, there are various images or moments in, in theatre that you've mm. seen which you can quite easily recall, you know. I remember seeing Diana Rigg in Mother Courage at the National in London. It, stayed, it will stay with me forever, pulling that cart off at mm. the end. Um, yeah. It's a, well, it feels like also like, yeah, we're, we're always chasing this thing we love and are so passionate about theatre, but because of that ephemerality, like we are only left with the images mm. at the end of the day, mm. like going, I'm sure in that production, Mother Courage, there's, that's the main thing. And there might be a handful of other just snapshots you've got in your mind of that production. Absolutely. But for something to really remain and hang around and stay in that way is kind of really remarkable. Yeah. And it's how you really know when you've seen works of greatness yeah. because yeah, in the, 10 or 20 years later, into your, they're there. Yeah. Well, um, Declan, it's, it's that time of the year again when um, theatre companies start mm. launching their seasons for the following year and uh, Griffin has, uh, has just done that. Um, very exciting season. Um, why don't you remind us about what, <laughs> what we're going to see <laughs> in, well, in 2023. Um, it's all very new, I suppose, so you are getting your head around all of the associated creatives and the, the repertoire that's being presented. and. Um, it's extremely new and it's it's um that's the fun and the joy and the challenge of it every single time it's all completely new plays and they're all um we don't yes it's not as if you're presenting a classic or yeah a revival or no no so it's all completely untested but um but also like for a work to get on our stage here it's had a everything we do has had like a really long process of workshopping and rewriting and so will we see Black Showgirls? Because that was that was cancelled. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, so I've guessed we will one. see. I've guessed. One. Yes. Yeah. So that's. So yeah, Black Showgirls we were originally going to be presenting this year, but um, uh, that didn't end up happening in twenty twenty two. So that will be our our final work of next year. Actually, we're going to close out with a bang, um, and that's yeah, that's by uh, Nikia Louie, and it's. Uh, do you want me to do, like? Do, should I do, do? you want to know the story of them, or is it valuable just to do a like? Blah, just blah, give, blah. give us a bit. Give us a sales pitch. Right. Well, this is you know? this is Nakia Louie doing. Um, uh, <laughs> You've even got the voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my um uh, my um game show host incarnation. It's um it's uh, yeah Nakia Louie doing uh, a kind of satire of um, money and and commerce in the First Nations art industry 
um, by adapting one of the worst films ever made, Showgirls, right. by Paul Verhoeven. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which I only rewatched again recently, and I mean, God, truly, that's a, work a masterpiece, a work absolute masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that's how we're kind of closing the year and we're kind of, I guess, bookending it with two, the year with two works that are pretty explosive in that way because Black Showgirls is going to be this kind of huge dance, burlesque, spectacular squeeze into the stables. And we're opening it with a work um, called Sex Magic by Nicholas Brown, um, which I'm co-directing with Nicholas. And um, it's a play about a, um, a rugby league physiotherapist who... Has, uh, starts experiencing these kind of horrifying seizures when his father dies. So he goes back to the village in Kerala in South India that his father's from and meets a guru. And the play is about a kind of unraveling and awakening kind of told through theatre, but also a Katakali dance and live video. And it's going to be, again, pretty big and pretty ridiculous Brilliant. and pretty fun. Yeah. yeah. And super, super queer. Because Nick's been here before with Light and Up, hasn't That's he? That's yeah. right. Yeah. So this will be his kind of return to the stables after quite a few years Great. as a playwright. Um, and then the second work of the season is uh, by Eloise Snape. Um, it's called Pony, and it's directed by Anthea Williams. And um, Pony's very much in that tradition of what I was saying before, love for this to be the space where playwrights are taking the first you know, steps on the main stage. And um, this is actually Eloise's first play. She's a remarkable um, uh, actor. And this is a one-person show that's going to be performed by Braylene Clark, and it's about um, a kind of heavily pregnant fantasist named Hazel who... Um, at a rather inopportune moment in her pregnancy like when she's about to pop suddenly goes actually am I ready for this can I do this can I be a mother and the play is basically this kind of prolonged anxiety spiral um, because obviously it's way too late but it's kind of very much about that kind of thing of going is anybody ever kind of ready for parenthood and how do you kind of process that psychologically it's a very funny comedy and then the one after that is um, by Susie Miller Susie Miller is returning oh great yeah with a work that's almost a kind of um unofficial kind of companion piece to Prima Facie. It's called Jail Baby. And um, similarly to Prima Facie, it's Susie kind of uh, creating a work from her um, kind of lived experience um, in the world of law. Um, but where Prima Facie was um, about uh, kind of sexual assault um, uh, and um, the kind of dysfunction of the legal system in uh, kind of failing women in cases of sexual assault and rape. Um, Jail Baby is about uh, young men in the prison system and the way that the system similarly um, fails them, but you know, in an entirely different way. And yeah, it's very much about what happens to young men inside the walls of prisons, something that is very kind of known and generally understood socially, but is not something that is spoken about except often kind of as a punchline and a joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like very harrowing, but um, of course, like it's Susie, so it's sublime, difficult, complex and um, work that will really ignite a huge social conversation, I think, and directed by um, Andrea James. Wonderful to see Susie's um, career trajectory really sort of you know, rocketing you know, with seasons of Prima Facie in the West End and um, soon to be Broadway. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and also like testament to, I think, her kind of phenomenal integrity as an artist as well, that you know, her, her trajectory is phenomenal, but she genuinely loves doing risky difficult work and um she knows that this is the place to do it and and wants to come back to present this to this audience that she loves and um who have nurtured her and who she's nurtured as well yeah yeah Yeah. and then through our um, we have our program uh griffin lookout which is for 
independent um, theatre makers, kind of the next generation of really exciting people making work here in Sydney. And we've got two works that we're presenting. One of them is um, called UFO by um, Solomon Thomas and Kirby Medway through Regroup Performance Collective. And it's a work about a UFO landing um, told with live video and tiny little 3D miniatures. Um, it's a really inventive and fun um, and beautiful work of... Uh, it's kind of about climate change, but through this kind of like elaborate metaphor of kind of human paralysis in the face of something huge. Um, and then the other work, which I'm equally, equally excited about, um, is called Gadigal Girl. And a, kind of what I love about um, presenting this work is that it's like often when people talk about like early career artists, they're talking about like 20-year-old drama school graduates or whatever. But um, Gadigal Girl is being written and performed by um, uh, Uncle Graham Sims, who is kind of better known as um, Nana Miss Khoury. Um, who is, you know, like a well, queer Gadigal elder, but also like icon of the Australian kind of drag scene. Yeah. Um, and she's making her first one woman show here at um, the Staples, which will just be about her Nana and Graham's um, kind of life, like this really beautiful work of kind of very simple storytelling. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Do you know when the, the subscriptions open? Yes. Well, we, um, the, the 19th of September is the day that we're launching and right. subscriptions are happening from then onwards. Great. Excellent. Is it, is it, it must be a daunting process putting, pulling together a season. Mm. I mean, there's, you obviously read a lot of scripts, mm -hmm. you see a lot of things, um, you've got to consider your audience. Yes. You've got to consider new voices, subject matter. Yep. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is a lot of things to consider, but I think like I was saying, it's the, my like, the place I operate from as a theatre maker, which I think is also where I operate from as an artistic director, is it's about invitation and it's about um, creating a world for mm. people to enter and offering that up with generosity. And, and you know, I've, I've certainly would never and have never subscribed to the idea that, like, I'm going to put something on a stage because it's cultural medicine and you should take it. Yeah. Or this is what they're doing in Germany, so you should like it. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It's like, Good um, for you. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I only ever program something if I think it has an act of generosity at the core of it because it's funny or because it's, um, it'll take people somewhere. It'll offer them a deep emotional or cathartic or beautiful or challenging or kind of cerebrally kind of invigorating kind of thing it should always connect and i think if it doesn't connect that's when i feel like i've done i, I haven't done the right job or i haven't really done my job properly okay. but um but uh that's always kind of what the intention is so it's kind of i guess balancing that with um th to be honest the biggest challenge i have is just that we don't do that many plays mm. It's um like we could program There's so many more that you could do every year. It's yeah. like I I always mourn for the like other cons configurations of the season because there's always so many amazing plays that we don't get to put on every year and that we go oh maybe next year or maybe well maybe in the redevelopment have you thought about two stages two I would, I would love that. I mean <laughs> yes absolutely. I, I mean when we do the redevelopment I feel like there's so many so many other ways we can try and produce things as well. Mm. Maybe we can. Um, late night programming and doing stuff in the foyer and doing but um no i feel like i think that's the that's always the hardest thing to weigh up because there's just so many talented playwrights in this country as well like we are so lucky there's such a rich and amazing playwriting tradition here yeah. and um yeah 
I wish that uh, it sounds very Pollyanna, but I do. I wish we could like put on so many of the plays, so many more plays than the ones we get to read every year. Well, Griffin Theatre is in very safe hands, I, I know. <laughs> Thanks, um, uh, no, um, thank you for the conversation. Um, all the best for your fourth year, 2023. Oh my God. I bet it's flown. I feel like I started a week ago. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, I really do. But um, uh, I also never thought that I'd be sitting here going, yeah, so we own the building now. And yeah, it's this, it feels like a time of change, but it feels really exciting. All strengths to you. Thanks, Thanks, Stephen. Thanks so much, Rita. The Griffin Theatre season for 2023 is now revealed and subscriptions are open. You can dive into the wealth and variety of theatre experiences assembled by Declan Green by visiting the Griffin Theatre website, www.griffintheatre.com.au. It will be another exciting year of plays and performances at Griffin, providing the Australian drama repertoire with a batch of new and diverse theatrical works. It is always a thrill to be present at their debut productions. Stages, wishes Declan and all at the Griffin Theatre Company all the best for the year ahead. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website www.stagespodcast.com.au or from Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you find your favourite podcasts. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe and I'll catch you next time on Stages.